Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Mean O-Line Media presents Black Arm of the Law. So welcome to Black Arm of the Law podcast, where each week we'll examine the most pressing issues in the criminal legal system. I'm your host, Dr. Rochelle Brackney, also known as Chief B. As we settle into today's show, don't forget to download, subscribe, follow, rate, comment on Twitter, Instagram, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. So let's jump into it. So my guest for today... I mean, I'm going to get tired of this is the first, the first, the first, the first, the first. But I'm going to go ahead and give it to you all anyway, because you need to know who's bringing the thunder and the fire today. I have Dr. Tracy Kesey. She was the first African-American commander in Denver. Now, we're talking Denver, Colorado, y'all. We know there ain't a whole lot of folks who look like us there. She was the first female captain in Denver as well. She was the first deputy commissioner for um, equity inclusion in the NYPD. As we know, that is the largest department in our nation right now. He was also head of their training. Um, Dr. Kisi has been to the FBI National Academy. We'll talk about that too in Quantico, Virginia. Held it down 10 years or so before, 10 classes before I found myself there. But more importantly, the reason I have my sister friend on here today is She had a vision a long time ago and is the co-founder and current president and chief operating officer at the Center for Policing Equity. Come on, y'all. If nothing else, please walk there. Welcome the, the doctor, Tracy Kesey. How you doing, (laughs) Sister Friend? I am so always good when I'm in your presence. And that introduction just made me feel old. I'm like, wow, we were 10 years before you get to the N.A. I'm like, all right, auntie, that's what we're going to do today. I'm just going to tell you. But it's always a pleasure to see you. And I'm always so proud of the work that you're doing, that black arm and a law. Okay, we're doing it. Well, that's what we're going to do. We're going to do it today, too. And okay, I'm going to just have to re- re- restate that. So it's not 10 years. How about 10 classes? <laughs> okay. But you know what? You're looking fresh and fly for, oh. for those of you all who see the podcast. Uh, sister always looks fresh and fly. So Thank you. Those, that time ain't got nothing on any one of us. So let's start this conversation. For the audience first, I want to set the stage as to how we even got to a Center for Policing Equity. So then we can then talk about why the necessity, why the then, and more importantly, why the now. Talk to the audience. What is the Center for Policing Equity? Oh my goodness. Um, so let, let me back up. I should back up, right? Because the center is 15 years old. And so this was a concept or a brainchild of Philip Batiba, Solomon, and myself. Um, I think most folks know him by Phil Goff. And 15 years ago, uh, he and I met at a convening at Stanford, Jennifer Eberhardt, for those of you who do not know that name, and understand the book that she wrote on bias, was hosting a conference with police chiefs and researchers um, looking at the issues of implicit bias, um, looking at race and policing. 
And I happened to be actually taking the, pl- the place of my chief at that time, Jerry Whitman, um, because he knew I was doing uh, research. So like you, you know, we were uh, working shift work, going to school um, and doing all those things that we do. And so he knew that I was working on, a, on this particular issue. And so he invited me to go in his stead. And of course, when I arrived there, and as usual for, for folks in the audience who are police officers, you know, we don't think much of scientists and social scientists and, you know, don't believe much of what anybody has to say but ourselves. But I was sitting next to a young man who had been doing work with her on not just implicit bias, but the aging up of our children um, and how often law enforcement sees them older than they are. And also working on masculinity threats. So this man was not only, you know, a genius before his time, uh, he clearly had a vision in regards to, you know, where does this make the most impact? So he and I sat next together. I sat next to each other at dinner and, and we hit it off. And you'll often hear us if we're in the room together, um, c- certainly much younger than I am. Uh, but it really sort of struck up this uh, sibling relationship. And one of the things and when he tells this side of the story is always different, right? There's two sides of the story. But one of the things that I did is I challenged him to do his work with law enforcement, because for those of you who don't know, most social scientists use students when they're trying to prove or disprove you know, specific theories. And students are cheaper because you can just feed them and they're just you know grateful to have food when you're in college. If y'all remember the flashback, right? Ramen only can get you so far uh, if they're still eating ramen. And so one of the challenges um, for him was to come to, at the time, Denver PD and let's talk, if you're going to do this, do this for real. Right. So don't just, you know, do theories around law enforcement and how we operate and how we think, but actually come and and use those folks, of course, with their permission to test it. And so what he did is he came to Denver. He stayed with my husband and I for quite some time. He has lovely stories, he'll tell you. Um, And we essentially embedded him in Denver PD because one of the things that you cannot do, and I always tell people this, which I can't say can't, but what makes it much easier is to have a really depth knowledge of how law enforcement works, the culture of law enforcement, uh, how people are recruited, how people you know are socialized there. And so it was important for him to have that. So he lived with us for a while and he'd go to work every day and we'd put him in different um, you know units and he'd be with them for a while and ride with them for a while. And so when he did that, um, he was able to really shape his experiments around the realities of what was happening. And so in the doing of that, he and I quickly identified that there was no, nothing that we could find that was really dealing with the issues of race and policing. And so we came together and said, you know, we should be able to provide a service to chiefs and to whomever is interested, even the community, and not charge for it. So let me repeat, not charge for it, because our legitimacy was at stake. We knew if we were accepting money from cities or from government, the community would say, well, you're a bot and paid for us. So there's nothing you can tell us. So the work with policing and the way we structured it um, 15 years ago, and it still stands today, is that we do this work. We center community. We understand policing. And we can get people to a place where it's what they want. Black liberation, public safety, um, all those things are possible. But it's hard. You have to disentangle systems that have been created to, and designed to do what they're currently doing. And so, you know, here we are 15 years later, we're still doing the work, policingequity.org. Um, and it's hard work. We've got great teams of people um, that work for CPE, and it's just very difficult. So, but for, for that, hopefully I answered your question, Chief, but that's, that's how uh, CPE came to be. 
So it's interesting, you know, for our listening audience, you know, in policing, we don't trust anybody but other police. That's right. Like, we just don't. You know, I don't care who you are, you know, what well-intentioned program you have coming in. So, you know, people do know him as uh, Dr. Goff, but Dr. Solomon now, right? Just say Phil Atiba and they all know who we're talking about. Let's set the stage. This is a black man, y'all. This is somebody who's really thinking about um, the threats of masculinity. And then you want to actually think about another layer. And let's just be honest. He was setting the threats probably of black masculinity to the United States whole structure. And then you center it in policing with the adultifying of our children. Um, They're often put in the adult system versus the opportunity to juvenile justice. Um, well, into the juvenile system or to be diverted in some ways, they're adultified very quickly. So we have a black man who's studying this and sees the, the significance, and he's sitting beside a black woman and says, let's come to Denver, right? And let's see what we can do because police trust two things, their gut and their guns. They don't trust statistics. And now for the first time, you're saying, let's anchor what we're doing and how we're responding to the community through an authentic evaluation process that we're going to anchor this in statistics. Do I have that correct? Right. So I would say not just statistics, but in the, to the science, right? Because some of this is social sciences and some of this is you know, social psychology. So it is, it is in the science. And I think to your point, right, um, you know, the two things that we continue to trust uh, one of the things, though, what is interesting is whenever we try to tell our stories as law enforcement, we always spoke from the gut, right? So you still hear the narratives. If you do X, that means either we're going to die or, you know, or something's going to happen. And you're not going to get the service that you need, which oftentimes those narratives are couched in fear. And one of the things that has really changed, I would say, since you and I have been in, you know, in this business is one, communities have educated themselves around policing. Um, and what it means to provide safety and what are police supposed to do. So they really have educated themselves. And, you know, then we saw the the onslaught of oversight committees and, and things like that. And so one of the things that the community is strongly now um, in 2024, no matter what the community looks like, is asking for is proof. So when you say this is going to happen to X, you're basing this on what? And for you to say, you know, our, my, our first reaction is if we change just a little bit, we're all going to die, right? Because that used to work. And I remember back in the day uh, when our, our words stood for everything, right? You could go to court and there was not a, a jury or a judge that would question what you did and what you were doing. And we know that that has changed tremendously. And so what has also changed is, and we've got new chiefs now, we've got some, you know, some old schools, even old school chiefs who understand this, is that you, you have to begin to say more than just, you know, we say so. I remember, you know, I don't know about you, when I was growing up and mom and dad used to say, do something. And you were like, why? It's because I said so. And you just went on, right? You didn't, you weren't going to stand up and go like, well, statistics today show that 30% of the kids who uh, do, you know, engage in this behavior, it doesn't work out. Well, you know where you would have ended up, right? So <laughs> I would have been in school. I'd have been somewhere else. So it's it's one of those things where times change and people are asking you to do more than just say something, but show us, show us what is happening, that you understand the issues. And even by engaging the science, it also 
means that you're responsible for understanding who you're providing safety to and what that looks like and how you should be engaging, but more so importantly, and, and you know this, do you understand the history in which all of this was created? And if you do, then you should be open to exploring safety in its various forms because it means different th- things to different people, and especially to you know, the black and brown folks. It means something very, very different. And so it's, you know, so to answer your question, it is, you know, yes, we do see chiefs that are more educated, chiefs who understand it. And I don't only just have that with chiefs, community, right? Um, And even our managers and our sergeants um, even understand that you you can't just go in and say, if you make me collect this data, then then the calls for service are going to, you know, suffer or I'm going to get hurt. And you have communities saying, can you just explain to us how you know this, right? And I think that is where you see not just the importance of science, but, you know, for CPE, this is what we're talking about, right? Let's not just, you know, throw out the narratives that we used to do. Well, let's talk about how do we get down to business and really try to figure out what's going on. You know what? CPE's motto is justice through science. <laughs> That's right. Right. It is justice through science. It's not justice because we demand it. It's not justice because it's the right thing to do, even though it, it is the right thing to do. But now we have irrefutable evidence. It's an evidence-based science um, way in which we tease out all the different parts of policing. And when you said communities are more informed, they, they not only are more informed, they now know how to leverage the systems to get accountability and transparency with every agency that is policing them. So talk to me about a concept that um, I first heard you talk about, um, literally, it it has to be at least about the same time as you were founding these things with CPE, uh, with Dr. Solomon, about the co-production of public safety, right? Because we now know that the police cannot do this by itself. And that word has been, you know, we, we have all these reiterations of that concept now, but we know the police can't do it. Um, if you think about it, we had 800 officers that were in Kansas City um, this week for the parade. We still had a shooting. We still have one person who's dead. We have 20 injured and you have 140,000 people around. But the shooter felt comfortable enough in that community even with 800 officers, to shoot. How might, then think about the words co-production of public safety, what it means to feel safe for everyone, and who's responsible for it, and even maybe how it might have impacted the events that unfolded this week in Kansas City. Mm, mm, Okay, we're going to go there. So this is where I do the shameless plug for the TED Talk on the co-production of public safety. But when we talk about co-production, what we mean is in, in just plain terms, is that everybody's got a piece of this, right? So there is um, a responsibility here that we're all going to think about how do we do and feed into what it means for people to be safe, everybody, including, you know, the individuals and communities. And to your point, and, you know, my heart goes out to those who, you know, suffered the loss from the Kansas City Parade and those who were injured. But this narrative around policing presence being enough Intel being enough, um, depending on where you get that intel from, we've known that that is not always true. We know that it has a small impact 
on for some what it means to be safe. Now, I don't know the particulars of what happened in Kansas City, and, and you know, I know that I believe that they have got a couple people in custody. But ideally, what you want to really focus towards is everyone has a stake in this. So that means there is collaboration on what it means to have different types of programmatic work um, to ensure safety. So, for example, and I'll use the one that I know you're all too familiar with, and most of us are, when you talk about mental health. One of the biggest pushbacks when we talk about George Floyd, post-George Floyd, um, defund, however you want to talk about it. But one of the pushbacks, I would tell you the jewel in all of that was a lifting of this idea that are you applying the appropriate things for the appropriate reasons and are you addressing what we're really trying to address, right? So for example, you and I both know we used to go to mental health calls. And we would go to folks over and over again, same people, right? And say what you will about whether what stages they were in in regards to their crisis. But one of the things, as I always do, I'll speak for myself, but one of the things as an officer, I would stand in that doorway and go like, what do you want me to do here? I have two options. I can do what we used to call street counseling and leave and hope that I don't have to come back here again. Or two, I can take you to jail. And I know taking you to jail is not going to get you the services that you need. So think of this. You have officers responding to social crises that don't have the tools to do what needs to be done. And then you want to hold them accountable when something goes wrong with a weapon or certain things are criminalized. And you have to look at these systems of why we are the only groups of people that seem to be responding to social issues. And the other one I brought up, and I, you know, I, I was with you and I was singing this, COVID, whether you believe in COVID or not, why would you send cops out to enforce mass mandates and not think something was going to happen? Why would you not send public health officials out? It was a public health crisis. It wasn't a criminal crisis. And yet then we were shocked when we got the responses that we saw. And so it is where you sit down and you, if you have these collaborations, and I know you used to do this a lot, and I know people would ding you for it, but you were deep in the communities in regards to asking, what do you need? What is it? And most of what you heard, and I heard as well at these community meetings, was not the cops. Not that we don't want them here, not that we don't need them here, but my needs come from government that lack the investment in my neighborhood. Food deserts, we don't have any clinics here. We don't have jobs, we have issues with education. And these are long, long standing issues. Cops did not create it. And yet we don't want to have the legit conversation in co-production about who should be responding to mental health crises, right? And I'll tell you, because we had conversations, large conversations with mental health workers and, and social workers. And the first thing out their mouths, like, I didn't sign up for that. I didn't sign up to go out 2 a.m. in the morning to see if someone, you know, if Miss Kazee is okay. I didn't sign up for that. So there has to be culture shifting in all of those services who are supposed to be serving the community. And this sort of over-reliance on cops and the politicization, I always love saying that word, of the work is making it even more difficult to get some work done, right? So for me, the co-production piece is also about having realistic conversations about who owns what and who should be held accountable to what. But we don't want to do that because that means you've got to put money on it. Right. And so, you know, we have to stop pretending as if we care. And, you know, I'm going to say this because we're coming up on some elections here. We have to stop like we pretend to care about those who are most in need because you don't. 
because we know what would solve this and we haven't. And so until you're being legit about the investments that have to be made and who you value, because budgets are a statement about value. And until you can show that you value black and brown folks, you're talking. And we know this. Even the cops know this. Cops are exhausted by it. Right. You just you whip us all in here and then say, go do this. And cops are looking at you like this. We didn't learn this in the academy. I know, I know I know you, Chief. You and I say that all the time. I'd be out of doors. I was like, that would, tell me where that was in week 16. And then we start making it up, right? And hope that we get it right. So that was a long way of me saying that's <laughs> that's what co-production is. Just some throwbacks when you know you've been raised by, by a black mama is, um, Trace, when you said, you know, when they said, you know, just because I said so. Then you said, you know, could you see responding when 30% of the, the children who don't respond this way? I'm like, you know, you live in a black household. 90% of y'all would be going to the dentist that day. Mm, so, if that. <laughs> my mother used to say all the time about those kind of responses. You need to dial 911 twice. Once for the ambulance and once for the cops. Right? Because <laughs> you going to the hospital and I'm going to jail. But anyway, so, we, you know, I'm, I'm going to go back to an old saying. You know, when you just talked about funding, we used to say, you, you know, I'll put five on it, right? That, that, that you would contribute to the solution or to whatever the, the outcome is. I had a conversation about police oversight. And um, one of the things that I'm going to echo is what you just said. We need to use the science to determine if the applications, as we used to say, if the intervention that we're doing is going to get us the desired outcome. And we don't do that a lot at all. So we start throwing all these new ideas at it um, versus really thinking about the science behind it. What kind of opportunities um, can CPE offer, right, services? Because you said it's free, you know, free 99 is a cop's specialty. (laughs) What can they get? Because you do hear like, well, wait a minute, if we have to do all this analysis and collect all this data, our time on task or the things we want to be doing, it's going to take away from it. And we're going to be um, more likely to be injured and more likely to do all these um, or people are going to kill us. Like we're not going to survive the encounter. Case in point, the New York, um, the NYPD Stops Act. One of the things that, you know, the current mayor, who's a former police officer, said if we just add a few more pieces of data, click, click, click on these drop-down boxes um, about when we stop people, either as a result of an officer-initiated stop or a 911 or some other way in which we engage them, oh my gosh, there's going to be some robber that's getting away and there's going to be some burglar that's getting away and you're having us to collect this data and there's out there, you know, there's rapists everywhere and there's, you know, homicides. Like, that's normally our default response. And I could see Mayor Adams as a black man defaulting to his policing experiences versus possibly the lived experiences of him devoid of the officer title, of the the mayor title, and what happens when you're on the other side of an encounter with police. So tell me why the science proves that these things, what one you can offer, but the science proves you're actually safer when we do these things. Thank you for that. And and I smiling at you because you knew when you were gonna throw that NYPD dig up in there. And I just did a a uh a conversation with my dear friend Ken Clory, who used to be chief of uh patrol with NYPD and, and retired. 
about the uh, you know the act that we're we're talking about they're collecting the extra data, and so there's two things. So let me let me start with the things that CPE offers. Right, are really around the data collection tools in how do we begin to implement some of the recommendations that we will give you once we do the data collection, and then how do we measure? Right, because the number one thing you just said is the thing we never do. Uh, we don't measure. We can't tell you if it's working or not. We just keep going. If it gives us a little bit of, you know, a glimmer that it might be working, then we double down. Uh, and then, you know, when it doesn't go right, then we just pull out everything from the roots, right? That's what we do. We're all or nothing kind of crew. But what's interesting about it is when you use the science and you use teams of folks, and I always tell people this too, and chiefs, you know, throughout the world and, um, you know, even in my work internationally, you have, as long as you have universities around you, as long as you have folks in the community who have nonprofits who do analysis, use them. They want to be used. They're the first ones that call us, right? Because oftentimes they can do that work and then they have teams of, of students and other postdocs who can help do that work. Um, that's where we start. We, we help you do all of that. But what's interesting about not just having this as, you know, free 99 and we, we rolled anything that, that way that it is. You also have to be committed to whatever the data tells you, because typically what happens is that once we pull data and and you know this, policing data is notoriously crappy. Um, we need to have a different podcast about RMS systems and, and everything else about how they're not designed to do what we're talking about. But you also have to be ready for what is going, what the science is going to tell you. And the science is not telling you absolutes. The science is pointing you towards areas in which you need to put your attention. And what happens is when we share data with police chiefs and it doesn't feel comfortable or it says things or it identifies simply that there's disparate activity and disparity does not equate to being a racist. And I don't know how many times I have to repeat this. It is, it's really pointing to disparate activity. And that means that there's something going on there that's involving groups of people that you need to go in and take a deeper look at. And usually what happens, and not all the time, because we've got, CP's got some incredible chief partners, but as soon as there is an inclination that that data is going to say something negative, chiefs freak out. They freak out, they freeze up, then they start, you know, that's not right, you didn't do it right, and then all of a sudden they become scientists. And it's like, and, and CPE is very, you know, we have wonderful relationships. We are like, cool, if you want to do a different analysis, if you want to do that, but here's what we have. Right. And again, it's free. So it's not like you're out of any money. So that, that gives me even more of information around, you know, where are you really standing? If you get this information, the first thing you do is try to shut it down. Then it tells me that you're not really serious about what is happening. And so, you know, we do that and we, we provide the, the technical assistance for, you know, implementation, measuring, monitoring, uh, helping you get community together and not community as you define it, but community in a broader sense. Folks you typically would never talk to. Um, folks who don't want to talk to you. Um, that's what we do. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. But I also think what is important about the science, and you mentioned this, and so I'll mention this conversation that I had with Ken Corey, 
Um, you know, and people always like to set up, try to set up adversarials, right? So they try to uh, sort of cash in on the divisiveness that we have in this country right now. And my conversation, I'm not saying that, you know, Ken is, you know, either political persuasion or not. But what's always interesting about Ken and I, and even when I was at NYPD, he and I would sit in spaces together and just go like, I, what are we supposed to do here? And we would talk for an hour and we would come back and we'd talk and we wouldn't always agree. You know, we're coming from different lived experiences and from different perspectives, even in policing. And we wouldn't always agree. But what we agreed on was that there's work that we need to do because we both want the same thing. And I think oftentimes we get lost in the rhetoric, in the narratives, in the politics, and the people who suffer the most are the people who are in the middle of all of this. And, the, and usually the people we don't even talk to, right? So just think back. We'll do all of these programmatic, this programmatic work, and you haven't even talked to the people on the ground to even know if this is the programmatic work they even want you to do. More importantly, in cities that we work in, there's already folks on the ground doing this work. So you don't need CPE to do that. What you need them to do is usually to do the numbers. Can you help us do the evaluation? So a lot of times the folks that can help you get this work done are already in existence. It's whether or not you have a relationship with them or not. And whether or not you trust that when they do things for you, that you either trust it. Because if it's not the way you want it, and I always equate this to, you know, when I got my grandkids are teenagers, when it's something that you don't want, you don't want to participate. But when it's something that you want and it works for you, you're all in. Everybody's in. Everybody's sitting in front of cameras, grinning and waving. And as soon as it goes, and you know, I, I know he'll do as it is, but as soon as shit gets feeling funky, all of a sudden we, you're nowhere to be seen. But the community's still standing there. And I'm going to say, too, that you have cops that'll be standing because cops don't want to be doing this. They want out. They'll tell you, get this off of me. Bring the people in who should be doing it. Uh, we're exhausted, you know, and, I, and I'll do what I normally do. My shout out for, you know, officers of color and, and women and women of color. That burden sometimes falls heavy on those folks. And so if you understand that, then any chief or, you know, what are they, director of public safety or whatever you're being called these days or commissioners, you, you have a lot of self-reflective work you have to do. And then you have to sit down and begin to educate yourself. Remember, I'm not saying having black folks educate you. You need to educate yourself and understand why these systems are operating the way that they are. But we also recognize that you are limited in what you can do. We understand that. And we also understand that you work for a boss that is highly political. We understand that. And we know at any moment you could be thrown under the bus. Not talking about you, big baby girl, but throw it under the bus for something that you know is right to do, but makes somebody extremely uncomfortable because we have to realize where we are and what we should be doing in this moment in time. So I'll stop there. So so what's so interesting about what you just said is um a couple of points that that um I want to make, right? First of all, I think collectively the the policing profession is so exhausted with all of the different types of ways in which we're supposed to to police that I've kind of coined that, you know, they they do nothing more than hold their breath while we catch our breath. Mm-hmm. Right? They're just holding their breath to the next episode. I'm I, I just went there to Dr. Dre and all of them, right? So But the thing about it is they want to, instead of leaning into the things, the hard data, the science that could actually make their jobs easier and that 
they could, that most of them, you'll hear them say they embrace the 21st century policing concepts around trust and legitimacy. The things that they, the tools that are out there that could actually help them with authentic trust and legitimacy, like having CPE come in and do a robust evaluation of your five-year data practices, right? This doesn't mean, like you said, you're you're a racist or you're you're violent. I tell people all the time, if if implicit bias, if we can disconnect people saying that we have implicit bias from you being a racist, we might be able to get some things done here, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we might be able to get some things done here. The thing that I'm concerned about is how agencies use these moments just as a temporary appeasement. You know, I brought CPN in in 2018 in Charlottesville after the Unite the Right when the community felt there was no legitimacy or any authentic authority or power from that policing agency after what had occurred there. And you all pulled as as haphazardly as it is, God bless you all. I don't know how you got five years of data, use of force and traffic stops and stop and frisk and all these other interventions, all these other things you asked for. You asked for our policies, you asked for our training. It's not like you're just asking for data. You're asking for things that we should have readily at hand. um, And most people may not necessarily have at hand. You're pulling 911 calls. You're grabbing things from, you said RMS, which are records management systems in which we collect our data. And these things often don't speak to each other. 911 doesn't speak to the data that you're pulling from your police that may not necessarily speak from the data that you're using for to send to your state on traffic stops or what you're sending to the FBI for your, your crimes and things like that. Why do you think there's such hesitancy Especially in this moment, you know, when you all have these services, George Floyd is a seminal moment when I really believed we would have some changes and people and departments would long term lean into the work that you're doing. What's the hesitancy behind doing the work? Because if you told me my department was, you know, stopping black men, officer initiated of their own accord. 50% 50% higher than um, when a 911 call is, and it's in 25% more likely in this neighborhood. I would want to own that and say, yep, I found this out, and look what we are now doing to address this issue. It's like, oh, we discovered we have cancer, there's a tumor, I'm not going to leave it untreated. What's the hesitancy? What a, what a great question, and I'm going I'm to do what I normally do. Um, you know, you mentioned George Floyd. I go all the way back to Rodney King. That's how far back I go. And even then, there was a hesitancy. And I would tell you, oftentimes, hesitancy is accompanied by not knowing what to do. So data always tells a story. Um, you may not like the story. And in a lot of cases, it tells great stories, right? Because when, you, when I say data, a lot of folks think of, you know, numbers. And I'm talking about body-worn cameras. Um, you know, I'm talking about, you know, having focus groups. So when we talk about data, there's a broad definition of data that helps inform the stories. But the hesitancy usually, not always, usually is around not knowing what to do. So you give this to us and, you know, we understand it. And I tell you a lot of times, like you, you already knew it existed. This this was not anything you didn't know was happening, right? Intuitively and just from your experience and being there, 
But what you were looking for is like, I just need a way to, to, to show folks, here's where we've been, here's where we're going, and here are the policies that are going to help us go even further, right? So a lot of times we already know this, and the, and the, de- the data often will confirm what we already know. And community tell you this all the time. You can't tell me that you're killing all these black men, and I didn't know it. I, I know it. I'm, I'm living it, right? So the data confirms it. But the hesitancy is typically not having the tools. That's one piece. The other part of the hesitancy, depending on the type of folks that you're dealing with, is that there's fear that they're going to get blamed for something that they had no control over, right? And, and that's, that's legit, right? That's heavy, especially depending on, you know, the timing of the time sequencing that this is happening. And we watched this happen, you know, post-George Floyd. Like when I say post, I mean a couple of weeks, a month, six months, a year, chiefs were losing their jobs left and right for something they knew existed, had no tools to even begin to address. And yet it was politically expedient to get them out the door because you thought it would quiet the community. And so there's a couple of things in there that sort of intermix with the hesitancy part. And then you have some people who just flat out don't believe this is an issue. So, I, you know, I'm going to give a shout out to that. I'm not going to just say we have people who don't have tools and don't know how to do it. You got some folks who don't think race is an issue, who don't think race and policing is an issue. And that's you have some chiefs, you have some sheriffs who truly believe that. And what's always interesting about my conversations with them on that is where does that perspective often come from? And oftentimes it's just a belief, you know, folks are socialized that way. And where I've had to have a conversation with a couple of chiefs and say, so tell me, what is it like to to live as a black person? Uh, Give me a little insight of what that, that feels like and what that perceptions would be around certain things, right? And some will get offended. And I said, it's no different than me trying to tell you what it's like to be a white man. You can't. And so it's whether or not you trust what your community is telling you. And we've, you know this, we put validation galore on community, depending on who's telling you what, whether or not they were arrested. You know, since when has, you know, arrest been a, a proxy for your, your, you know, whether you're telling the truth or not. I mean, we got cops that have, you know, rap sheets left and right. Some of them still wearing badges. Don't know how that's possible. But you still want them to stand, you know, sit on the stand and, and swear to the truth. And so, it, you know, it's all of these things that we now as a community, as a country, have to sit down and have some real hard self-reflective look, real hard conversations around who gets to be a felon and who doesn't. And then how does that equate to your legitimacy? You know, and, it, and so it's one of these things like, well, you know, you got arrested once and that, that just cancels out all your experience. Like, that's not how the world works. That doesn't make sense, but it makes it easier for me to hold on to what I believe and what I think is going to happen if a city council person or my boss thinks that I have done something or contributed to something that I clearly had no control over. We inherited all of these systems. I tell cops this all the time when I'm with them. I said, that uniform has a history that you that is attached to it that ain't got nothing to do with you. And if you understand that, then it'll help you move a little bit easier in communities who don't have the relationships that you see in some gated communities. And not all of them are gated communities. But it's one of those things where we're still not having honest conversations about what's happening here and how history has laid the blueprint for a way in which we're acting and treating certain people. You know, and so that is why you see such a big push to try to erase and redo history, because we can't handle, you know, what we know occurred and what we're trying not to repeat. So, you know, so most folks struggle, you know, with that. And I think a lot of it has to do, too, 
with, you know, who they surround themselves with. So if you surround yourself with people who think like you, you're never going to move out of that. But if you have people who can challenge you and have you think about, you know, why I don't want this to be you know, made public, I can tell you most of the responses were two things. One, I want to keep my job and get my pension. And two, I don't want to be seen as a racist. And, I, you know, and, and you know how we, I'm sitting here going, like, I, I get the pension part. 100. I'm there. I have mine, so I'm not going to begrudge you on yours. Get the pension part. But we also took an oath. And we took an oath to help people be safe. And if you're saying to me your pension is is subsiding your oath your your uh, your oath right now, then you know as as I said too, you know we might have to think about retirement. You know, it might be time. Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, they, either way, right? It's gonna happen. You know what? I um am actually, you know, I'll, I'll put it out here first, uh, Trace, so you get to hear it more than another person. So everyone knows I am writing a book. Um, currently the bruising of America when black, white, and blue collide. But I'm also starting for the first time thinking about either a second book or an article, right? You, when you said, man, we'd be working and going to school at night and doing everything. We got job, we got tons of jobs, right? But the second one is to what you were saying about um, how do we can change organizations. And I say all the time is your inheritance doesn't have to be your legacy. So we inherit some things like policing, like, you know, our backgrounds, like trauma, but that doesn't have to be the legacy. And so what does that look like when you're talking about personal and organizational change, particularly in policing? So maybe, you know, maybe we start working on that one together, (laughs) uh, my sister, because you've been writing some articles. Yes, yes. But, you know, it's to your truth, right? Uh, your inheritance doesn't have to be your legacy. That's a t-shirt, girlfriend. That's all I'm telling you, right? Because one of the things that we get stuck on and the way we're socialized in policing too, right? Most of us now don't even think we're, you know, for those who make the chief ranks, uh, you know, for lieutenant sergeants and everybody else. And even for those who don't want to promote, I get that too. You know, my husband was that way. He's just like, mm, I'm good. I'm just, <laughs> Cause there's too many politics going on. What are we trying to do? We're just trying to do the every day, trying to get to the call, trying to get to the lunch and then try to go home. But you know, y'all want to make it something different when you start going through the ranks. It's something crazy. But even how we're socialized, right? And, and so, and what I throw into this, as you know, because I'm more of a culturalist than anything, the policing culture. And, and everybody says, well, you know, well, well, the culture, the culture. I say, well, yeah, everybody's got a culture, right? I got a culture. We got black culture. I got a culture. And, and culture is what it is. And, and some things can be added to culture and then some things can be weeded and separated out, which we generationally stop doing. Right. And so when we always sort of default to these things in policing and, you know, even people who don't work in police throw their hands up. It's like, I don't know how you do this because, you know, they don't want to do anything. I said, well, well, these folks didn't turn into the people that they are alone. Right. That starts way back in the academy when we're trying to you know beat, or beat the humanness out of you and trying to turn you into something different. You know, so it's it's one of those things where you have to think about we always and I, and I say this because of what we've learned from George Floyd and policies and change that we will do what we need to do to your point to quiet the masses because it doesn't feel good when people are at your door uh, trying to pull you out, trying to call you out and the whole nine yards. It's not, it's not a good feeling, period. Right. So we will do what we think is right. And we will put ourselves in spaces where we might not normally find ourselves 
which a lot of folks did during George Floyd. I mean, I saw Chiefs with kneeling and I was like, why are you on the ground? You know, and I'm just like, that's not what this is about. Uh, you know, this is this is long historical issues that are for for most of you, I guess, are new um, that you didn't you weren't aware that this was was going on in the community. And I say well, you weren't aware, but I would say there's a level of awareness we all have until it, it's at your doorstep. Right. And, and until it gets to your doorstep, it's not a concern. And that's just the reality of, of the world. Right. I you know, I don't know anything about, you know, my my grandkids live in San Diego. And, you know, the floodwaters and Russian waters. I live in Colorado. I'm in, I can tell you about a fire and some snow. But until it gets to you, it's not of your concern. And what we are trying to tell folks to your book and your books, and I always give you a shout out because I don't have the patience to write a book. But what we say is you need to be more aware of what is going on around you because it does impact you. So safety in the Black community whether it is in Park Hill in Colorado, whether it is in, you know, Green Valley out here, whether it's Harlem, whether it's Watts, wherever you want to say, it, it all impacts you. And so the ability for you to say, or at least show some interest, and why is that happening like that? Ask the, I always tell you, just ask a question. You have a voice, just ask somebody, what, what, why are you doing that? And, and some people get real nervous when, when other people start asking the question, right? If it's the same old, same old, it's just like, well, you know, you know, they just all, they always, they nobody know, you never know why. But when somebody else starts asking questions about why, why are you doing this? And that's what happened during George Floyd, right? Folks started asking questions and it was people who didn't look like us asking questions where folks started getting nervous and just like, well, oh, maybe this is legit. But I always tell you that um, next year we'll be coming up on the five-year anniversary of George Floyd. And this reminds me just like Rodney King. We're going to have to ask ourselves the hard question. What did really change? Where, where did we really go? And did we really get to the root of why you saw all of those folks in the street, not just in the United States, around the world, because blackness travels, it says transatlantic, the boats were going all over. That's what I tell everybody, boats was everywhere. And that feeling and that kinship, it, it just transcribes and it just... It's all that. And so it involves all of us. And, you know, what I said, you know, my liberation is tied to yours. My freedom is tied to yours. And until you understand what that means, we, you know, I hope not, but we're still going to be sitting here in these town halls and coming up with these things that we hope people will implement, but won't fund and they won't sustain. I don't know about you, girlfriend. I'm getting old. I, I don't have the patience anymore for, you know, rinse and repeat. We've been here before. And it's just like, hey, what is that? What is my movie with Jerry McGuire? Show me the money. Put the money where your mouth is, man. We know it creates this. Get the money up in there. Yes. That part. That part. So two quick things, and then I'm going to let you go, because I know your time is more than precious. Um, so you're right. We are, There is a thing called blue socialization. If we don't believe that that, you know, we are socialized in a certain way and policing, um, you're going to miss this. One of the chapters I'm writing is called The Hues of Blue, because it ain't all the same depending on where you are in that blue spectrum. You know what, if I ever get the book done, I swear, if I ever get the book done, I'm, you, you can be the first person that interrogates me about it. But here's what I want to really end, end on. There's two things. You're exactly right. 
In 2018, I'm at the IACP conference. That's the International Association for Chiefs of Police conference in Orlando, Florida. I had just taken over as the chief of police in Charlottesville, Virginia. And we're all in full uniform, you know, when they bring all the time in the, the president to speak. Whoever's the president is always invited, supposedly, because I don't remember Barack, you know, them inviting Barack up there. But they might have. I'm guessing they did. All right. I'm going to just be OK and just give them some grace. But I remember as they were bringing out, and I'm going to tie this to George Floyd, as they were bringing out Donald Trump at the time, they they start the playing the music, the all hell, the president music or whatever it is. Um, I don't know that one. You know, I don't know the thing. But they're all in uniform and they tell you everyone stand for the president of the United States. And I'm in full uniform at that time. I'm about 10 rows back from the stage, just happened to look out. And as he stands there and comes out, everyone stands, I take a knee um, in front of him in support of what Colin Kaepernick is doing and saying about police violence, police violence in Black community, right? So for me, that knee was very different. I'm surrounded by about 5,000, let me you all set the scene for you, about 5,000 or more white men in uniform, and I'm a Black woman in uniform in from Charlottesville, Virginia, taking a knee for a very pro- Trump Republican candidate who often espouses that we should engage in police violence. To your point, when George Floyd, after we all watched that execution and people were taken to the streets, so in 18, they're all condemning me, talking mess on me in 2018. These same police chiefs, white male police chiefs are taking knees in the street. And so when I asked the one question beyond why are they taking a knee, I asked one more question. Have we gone back for everyone who had their photo op moment as they're sitting there praying, how many of those officers, how many of those chiefs wrote in and supported the justice of George Floyd and Policing Act? So let's make put your money where your mouth is. If you put your knee on that concrete for your photo op moment leading a rally or demonstration or a march in 2020, you know, and saw this happening globally. How many of you went to Congress in support of the George Floyd and Justice and Policing Act? How many of you put five on it? That's all I'm saying. Yeah, no, I mean, I mean, say that, that part, right? Because this is the, this is exactly what we're talking about. It is safety for those who are in most need shouldn't fluctuate with political candidates. Shouldn't, I, I frankly, shouldn't fluctuate with chiefs. Because if you know what works, and if you have science that tells you this is what's working, then you continue to invest in it as you evaluate it. And then it doesn't matter. Funding shouldn't be pulled because you got a new chief or the chief wants to do some, a, I hate this line, go a different direction because you don't even know what direction you're going into. You've been here 10 minutes. Right. The cops will tell you, you know this. We used to hold out. Right. That's all right. Just cheap. I'm going to see six chiefs before I retire. So let's see what this one's got. Right. <laughs> let's see what the new tricks are of the day. They've been renamed, but we just did this five years ago. Right. And so things like that for the communities who are most in need should never change with a chief. Right. If we know this works, we know this keeps crime down. We know the community saying, please keep doing this. They're not looking for a new chief to come in and say, Hey, I want to, I want my legacy to be X because their life is, is moving on, whether you're there or have a legacy or not. And that to me is the disconnect. 
right? And so when you start putting those in, and you claim those who are most vulnerable, who need our most protection, then I don't understand how come it keeps switching every time we get somebody in there who doesn't understand what needs to happen. So I think it's important to your point, right? And then I'll, I'll just do a, a sort of addendum to your knee at the IACP. And you know how dangerous that was because being black in uniform is also a different conversation because there are different things that you can or not supposed to do for your own community. And so I think that we have a lot of things that we are working towards that I think we know we can do. And I think we also still have some realizations around certain pockets of what we're still fighting for after all these years that need to be done. And I think you have community who understand that. And I think what's even more interesting to me is you've got new generations of kids who know their history. So let's be clear, who know their history and know the systems, and to your point, are learning how to operate those systems and know what they want for safety. And oftentimes safety doesn't mean a uniform. And if you haven't wrapped your mind around that part yet, then it's going to be even more of a struggle in the next five years. And we all know for those of us who kept going back to that same address, that we are oftentimes not the person or persons that these folks need. And this is not an ego situation. We're the cops, you're not. All that has got nothing to do with it. It has everything to do. What is our role in policing now? What does it mean to be safe, not defined by law enforcement? And then how do we provide and collaborate on services to get people what they need? And sometimes that means we're not in, not in that space. And that has always been okay. Folks, I want to thank my guest. I mean, she can always be in this space. I don't care what the rules say. She can always be in this space. She is always welcome back. Thank you so much for your kindness, your generosity, your warmth, your passion. No, we're not getting old. We're just a little seasoned. Yeah. That cast iron. I love that. I am that cast iron and the bacon grease in the pot on the side. That's me too. So you want flavor, you put some of that in there too. So I appreciate you always. And thank you so much for your work and your activism. And people don't hear you say this that often, uh, Dr. Brackney. When we get in the room as doctor, doctor, we have to, we chuckle about that as well. But thank you so much. And thank you for much, so much for having this space um, and hearing the different voices. So I do appreciate you. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, it's it's not often you get to sit in a space with um, a person who is not only a pioneer in the work like Dr. Cassie is, but a a person who is passionate about the work, who's committed about the work, who comes from policing as a practitioner and someone who is an academic, is a scholar um, who backs her walk with the, or the talk with the walk. And she does it by justice through science. What does that mean to everyday people in the community who say, you know what, I don't need your data to tell me that the police are stopping us at higher rates than anyone else. I don't need your data to say that they're throwing more charges on us than anybody else. I don't need your data to say that, you know, we are victims of false confessions. We are the victims and have the highest exoneration rates of people who are innocent and have been wrongfully convicted. I don't need your data and your science to tell me my lived experience. What I would say to each of you all, arm yourselves, arm yourselves with the science so that you can hold your policing agency accountable accountable for the way in which they police you, but more importantly, the way in which you can inform the way in which you are being policed. 
I'm telling you all, the Center for Policing Equity, Dr. Cassie, she just drops the mic every single time. What I'm going to ask you to think about as you become more informed about the resources that are available to you, as you are more informed about how your formal policing agency works, as you are more informed about the history of policing in this nation, but even the history of policing in your local town, in your, your state, um, your municipality, federally, as you become more informed, demand, demand that their inheritance doesn't have to be their legacy. To the audience, thank you for listening. Please tell someone about the show. Don't forget to download, subscribe, follow, rate, and comment on Twitter, Instagram, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts like Apple, iHeartRadio, Pandora, Spotify, and definitely the mean old Lion Media app. This is the end of my shift. I am 1042. I'll catch you next week. The Black Arm of the Law podcast is hosted by Rashal Brackney Wheelock. Executive producers Ken Johnson, Steve Tompkins, and Rashal Brackney Wheelock. Find Black Arm of the Law on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, Spotify, the Mean Old Line Media app, or where you get your podcast. Follow Black Arm of the Law at BLK Arm of the Law on IG and X. Follow the Mean O Line Media Podcast Network on IG at Mean O Line Media. Get the Mean O Line Media app in the App Store and Google Play for more great podcasts. The Black Arm of the Law Podcast is a Mean O Line Media production. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.